I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. Dr. Michael Fauntroy, my great friend, thank you for joining us. Dr. Michael Fauntroy, of course, is an eminent political scientist from Howard University. He joins me here. We're both coming from our homes. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I want to ask you, you know, we're in a moment right now where the United States is reckoning with racism in America. And I want to start with a pretty big question. What do you think needs to happen for systemic racism to end in the U.S.? Well, the answer to that is somewhat embedded in the word systemic racism. Right. It requires a complete system reboot, if, if you will. And given that it's taken 400 plus years to get to this point, I think that reboot is something that's going to take some time, require some patience, and require some truth and reconciliation about where we are and how we got here. You know, one of the real interesting sidebars that I'm noticing in some of the public discourse around this is how there's so many whites that appear to be saying, I didn't realize it was as bad as it is, you know, and I find that interesting. But, you know, over the course of our history, there have been groups of people who have sort of had their head in the sand about where things are going. And it wasn't until fire hoses and dogs in the South in the 1960s were broadcast on the news all around the country that people began to recognize what was being talked about and and concerned about in the 1960s. So here we are now in a similar circumstance in which we have video of people being abused by police officers and literally being killed. And now a new generation of Americans are saying, oh, wow, I didn't really know it was that bad. And that concerns me because it means that people don't actually believe what they've been told for years. But it also worries me, Andrew, because it also says that if were it not for the video, people wouldn't even really be accepting this as reality. You may recall a few years ago in North Charleston, South Carolina, a black man was running away from a police officer. The police officer shot him in the back and then planted a gun on him. And had it not been for the fact that a bystander was videoing it all, that cop would have gotten away with it, right? That kind of thing happens all the time in the United States. And we have no idea how many people have gotten away with murder, literally, because it wasn't videotaped. Well, and you've pointed out in your research that Black people are targeted and killed, what is it, twice as many times as as white people? or Three three times as, as often. Those are based on statistics that can be tracked. Right. Mm-hmm. What we found with the Brianna Taylor incident in Louisville, when looking at the police report that was originally filed, is that there were so many blank spaces on the forms that, you know, it suggested that the police officers never thought this would see the light of day and they just put something on paper and let it go. Well, we don't know how often that happens around the country and has happened around the country over the years. And as a consequence, we'll never have 
the full measure of the scope of the problem. But we do have enough now to galvanize people, good people, people who want to do the right thing, want to see America live up to its promise, and hopefully result in the kinds of public policy changes that punish racism rather than reward racism, which is what we have right now. So are we talking about the right things in this public discussion now? I mean, you know, this is, as you point out, the first big discussion we've had since the 60s. And it's a result of this video. But as you point out also, you know, these are happening all the time and we don't have the same discussion. Are we now talking about the right issues? I think we're closer to talking about the right issue. So you you may recall over the course of the last few years, something big pops off and, you know, I I get called all the time from media outlets because they want to have a conversation about race. And I always note that I think a conversation about race is the wrong conversation because race is a social construct that's used to organize people in different categories. Uh, because we are human beings and inherently about organizing things so they can allegedly better understand it. But what we really need to be talking about is a conversation about racism, which is the use of race to advantage some people and disadvantage others. And so that's the real big deal that I'd like to see. And we're closer to that now. And so I'm, I'm happy that we're having some of those conversations. We t- you just started with a com- question about systemic racism, right? We don't have that, generally speaking. And I'm, I'm pleased that we're getting closer to that point. But, you know, things can take a turn. Remember, in 2008, we were having a different conversation about race, right? right? How great it is that there's a Black Democratic presidential nominee and he wins the White House and the conversation is about how much we've changed as a country. Here we are 12 years later, four years after the election of somebody who ran literally with racism at the core of his campaign. And 12 years after Barack Obama is elected, we have protests in the streets about Black Lives Matter in response to systemic racism. So police is clearly an issue. What are some of the other systemic issues that are being talked about now or not being talked about that really need to come to the forefront. I mean, one thing is I think a lot of Americans have not understood the subject of redlining. They've not understood uh, the economic injustices. You know, people are just finally now talking about things in the workplace in a way that I've never seen them talk about in my lifetime before. Are there other issues that we're not talking about that we need to be talking about? Yes. So, For me, there are a handful of things, and they're the same things that everybody else wants, right? It's the access to education, right? The high quality education so that you can go out and make a good living. So there's education, there's income. We know that uh, African-Americans and Latinos in the country earn less for the same jobs, right? So, So we need to have that conversation. So you have education so you can go out and earn money. Healthcare, we've, we made some steps in that regard, but we know from coronavirus that there are all kinds of, of health disparities that impact whether or not uh, people are impacted more so than others by viruses and other things. So these underlying health conditions. So there's education, income, healthcare, housing. You mentioned redlining, right? That's a really big deal. Most people don't understand that. But at the end of 2019, just to give you a little data on this, you know, President Trump was running around beginning in late 2019 talking about 
the uh, black unemployment rate now is historically low and how that shows he's sort of great for black people, right? Well, at the end of 2019, pre-COVID, the black homeownership rate in America was at its lowest point in 50 years. Well, what we know is that, particularly for African-Americans, homeownership is the only real way to build household wealth. So if you can't own a home, you can't really build wealth that can be used to invest in businesses or send your kids to college and so on and so forth. So that is a really big piece, the redlining piece, I think, because it speaks to a wider range of economic questions, right? So if you can't save and invest, you can't pass on income to your kids so that they could sort of start at a step or two above where you started. So all of these things are part of a much larger and broader question. So education, income, healthcare, housing, and then lastly is justice. We're having that conversation now, but we need a just system so that people don't have education, income, healthcare, and housing taken from them with impunity. Right now, the the system doesn't work and quite frankly has rarely worked for African Americans as it does for white Americans. And so what we're talking about right now, which is taking up a whole lot of space in the public discourse, is critical, it's useful, it's important, but it's also a small part of a much broader conversation that needs to take place. So, Mike, I'm worried that this isn't sustainable. You know, I'm worried that, okay, well, is this just another fad? I mean, you even see that, you know, there's New York Times bestsellers now out about the subjects that we're talking about, white fragility and how to be an anti-racist just swapped spots this week on the New York Times bestseller list with anti-racist. So is this a fad or is this something that's sustainable? Well, it's one thing to buy a book. It's another thing to read the book. And it's another thing to take lessons from the book, you know? So I wonder, I mean, look, it's going to be really good from a royalty standpoint for the people who wrote the books. For sure. You know, quite frankly. But beyond that, I'm just not sure. You know, it, you know, I, I'm a college professor, so I know that <laughs> students don't often read the books that they buy, right? <laughs> I can assure you of that. And so I don't know if it's sustainable because for it to be sustained will require America to do something it's never really done before. And that is to pay sustained attention to our overall sort of structure, system, ethos our vision of ourselves as a country. You know, I'm not sure. Uh, again, I think we'll be able to better answer some of these questions after the election in November. If there is a sort of earth shattering election, let's say for example, Biden wins 45 states, okay? And that the Senate majority goes away from the Republicans and they lose a bunch of seats that nobody thought they would lose and that the Democratic majority in the House expands beyond what people thought, then we might be on to something. But I don't know, because I, I just think that time will tell. We're still very, very early in this. And it's one thing to take down statues and that kind of stuff, and that, that's, that's symbolically important. But it's another thing to change public policy in a way that is meaningful and lives to the values of these ideas that, that people seem to be talking about. Yeah, I mean, you just really preempted my next question. I mean, 
what's more important, persuading white America to confess to being racist or achieving meaningful results? Well, the first part isn't going to happen. I think too often my sense of it is whites view admitting some sort of benefit from being white as them admitting that they are actually the perpetrators of racism. And those aren't necessarily the same things. A lot of people have benefited who didn't create the structure from which they benefit. Now, you know, some will say, well, they're complicit. Well, okay, that's fine. But complicit and actually a constructor of the system are two different things. Uh, but because most whites, in my view, don't see the nuance there, and by the way, as a country, I don't think we do nuance very well, they're unlikely to admit that uh, they benefited from, from this system. So I think you then have to go to the second part of that. Uh, and I think we've seen changes in public policy. Civil Rights Act of 1964, Voting Rights Act of 1965, Fair Housing Act of 1968. And since we passed a sanctions bill over Ronald Reagan's veto uh, because good people understood that standing with the apartheid regime in South Africa was bad, not just for South Africa, but was bad for America. So I think, you know, with some serious changes in November, you could change some of the public policy, but that's not, you know, I think it's going to be much harder to change the hearts and minds of people. Why is it hard for white people to admit such systemic racism as opposed to, it's easy to say there's plenty of fringe white supremacy groups. It's easy to point fingers and say, you know, oh, there's plenty of racism in this group or that group. But it's not so easy to look inward and say, well, yeah, we're all part of benefiting from this systemic system. Right. So part of that is because you look at polling. I think there are a lot of people that don't believe that things are what we see them as. So we have what I believe to be a civically ignorant electorate. Okay. And some of that civic ignorance is militant. We have a militantly ignorant cross-section of Americans in terms of our civics understanding. And when you look at civics books in the middle schools and high schools around the country, what many of them leave out sort of speaks to a lot of what we're talking about now. So if you believe, as some history books teach, that slaves sort of came here willingly as immigrants, that actually exists in Texas history books. Hard to believe. If you believe some of those kinds of things, then it's difficult to accept the idea of systemic racism because you've grown up in a household that doesn't believe it. You've been taught by books and in school systems that don't teach it. Your worldview is shaped by a different reality. And so I think that while I don't generalize and and understand that generalizations are problematic, The truth is you do a study of the way in which we are taught civics in America, and it stands to reason to me that a lot of this would exist the way that it does because they're just people that they're never taught it, so they don't believe it's really real. For example, did you see a couple days ago in, in Arizona, right before the president's rally, one of the speakers, a college student, got up and talked about the fact that Aunt Jemima got canceled, right? <laughs> and talked about it 
as if this was a real person. We talked about how she lived the American dream. She had no idea that that was a racist trope turned into a character that was used to sell a product. And part of that is because she wasn't taught it and has a particular worldview. She was sincere in her words, Andrew. She actually lamented the fact that a fictional character used to sell syrup was actually, she thought was actually a real person that uh, reflected certain American values. So, you know, we got to break through all of that before we can get to some of these other broader conversations about the extent to which we can get people to understand all or more American history. Well, you know, I can even bring it to a, a personal example that you and I share. So for our listeners, Mike's son and my son play basketball together, and they're both really good basketball players. They're, they're young, they're 13, 14 years old, but they play at an elite level. And I've been in games where, you know, the other team will show up to play against our team and the other team will be from a different neighborhood. Our team is a, a mixed team and their team will be solidly African-American. And some of the white parents on our team will say, oh, we're going to get killed before the <laughs> game even starts. They'll look at the other side and they'll say, we're going to get killed. And I'll say to them, are, are you what makes you think that? And then they won't really say anything. And then the game progresses. And of course, you know, it's a really close game or we win or we lose by a couple or whatever, but it doesn't really matter. But what went into that thinking? Well, Andrew, I mean, <laughs> you know what went into that thinking? <laughs> I, I just so again, this is this is an example of some of the sort of anti-racist conversations that we're hearing in the public discourse right now. Even well-meaning people often carry some measure of racial prejudice. So we, we are a reflection in many respects of the media that we take in. And if the narrative is all of the best athletes are black and your kid is not, you're probably going to take the position that our team is going to get killed. But we understand that there's so much more that goes into that. You know, they're really good white athletes and they're not so good black athletes. And we got to let the game play and see where it lands. But, of course, that's not the way it is. And by the way, we see this all the time in, in my field in higher education. I can't begin to tell you how many black students at elite white institutions have said to me something along the lines of, well, they, you know, they just think I'm here because of affirmative action. And, you know, and many of the same students who are there are there on legacy or other things that are a version of affirmative action, right? And that the story isn't necessarily how you got in, but what you did when you got there, right? And if you are a student who got in a, through a non-traditional path, but you kill it academically, then you've demonstrated you belong and that there's not any, any sort of shame in that. But we see it all the time across a wide spectrum of things that exist, whether it's academics, athletics, uh, housing, you know, vacations. You know, if you are a relatively uh, well-off black family and, and you move into a relatively well-off white neighborhood, you know, you might get some sideways looks. You know, if you go vacation in places that are relatively expensive and, you know, many people don't look like you, you might get some, some interesting looks. And 
all of that is a function of the prejudice that some people have. I gotta tell you a quick story about this. So my wife Lisa and I go to Maui in December 2011, just a few months after the terrorist attacks on the country. Mm-hmm. And we were unsure whether to go, but we went and we're at a luau. And we're having a just a conversation random with some who, whoever's sitting at the table, we're having a conversation, right? And this was a while ago. I, I used to be a lot heavier than I am right now. And in the middle of the conversation, right, we're having a lovely conversation. A couple we're talking with across the table from us, they're from Indiana. And the wife looks at me and <laughs> she says to me, so what team do you play for? And it was the oddest question. I mean. That, you know, <laughs> and, and her, her husband was mortified by it because he knew that that question was crazy. Crazy. But reflected a certain reality that she had about a big black man vacationing in a very nice location in Maui from DC. He must be an athlete of some sort, you know? And so her husband tries to clean it up by immediately reaching into his wallet and showing me a picture of his two black adopted sons. Oh God. It, It just, it was just insane. And so, you know, people like me live with those kinds of stories. Yeah. We have tons of them, and I have others that I won't sort of get into now. But that's the world in which we live. And I'm just saying that to say, man, it's going to take a long time to unwind this. And my concern is that people are going to get impatient. And a year from now, I'm going to ask, are we still talking about that now? I mean, for our listeners who can't see my face, my jaw has dropped. My eyes are bugged out. And, you know... That reminds me of a story my friend Wes Moore tells about, and you know it's heartbreaking. Wes is an author and a Rhodes Scholar and a CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation. He's a war hero, and he talks about whenever he wants to go for a run in Baltimore, he has to think about what T-shirt to put on. Because if he goes and wears a plain T-shirt that says nothing, he feels like he could be targeted by the police if he wears a t-shirt with his alma mater, Johns Hopkins on it, he'll be fine. Or if he wears a t-shirt that says United States Army, where he was a captain in Afghanistan and a decorated war hero, he'll also be fine. But if he wears a t-shirt that says nothing or says Nike, he could easily be shot. And so every time he goes for a jog in Baltimore, he has to think about his wardrobe. And Wes is a grown man. Yeah. So listen, I have a version of that. When we're out, I almost always wear a Hampton University t-shirt, which is where I went to undergrad, or a Howard University t-shirt, which is where I went to graduate school. And all, all, almost always will wear the one that has alumni on it. And that's a conscious decision. I'm very conscious of this kind of stuff when I'm in an airport. You know, Lisa doesn't like this because she doesn't want to do it, and she often doesn't do it. But when I travel, when I fly, I always wear a suit and tie in part because you never know. And that, that kind of stuff. I, I bet you if you took an unscientific poll of black men of a certain age who are in certain professions, I think you find a very high proportion who have some version of that. You know, I mean, that's just the reality of where we are. It's unfortunate. You know, I learned early in my days as a professor that I couldn't just show up in class in jeans and a t-shirt like some of my other colleagues because I felt like that sent a certain message that I couldn't afford to send. So yeah, Wes Moore's story is very familiar to me. So how 
do you think America will keep this as a sustained conversation? Because it strikes me that the more we talk about this will lead to actually action and not just awakening, but real, as you say, public policy change. What needs to continue to happen so we see real changes and this isn't just a passing moment? I mean, one of the things in, you know, Todd Gitlin of Yale, who's written extensively about the 60s, you know, has said that, you know, the civil rights movement started out in the 60s and it turned into the anti-war movement and then it turned into the counterculture. You know, this is a movement and we don't really know what it's going to turn into. Right. So I don't yet know that it's a movement. I'm still thinking it might be a moment, but time will tell. And I hope I'm wrong. I hope it becomes a sustained movement. But to do that requires a lot of time. It requires a lot of public education. But more so than any of that, it requires those who are on the other side to be held accountable for their words and actions. Because as you know, for every person who feels one way, there's probably at least one person on the other side who likes things just as they are. And so for those people, as in this case, the protection of the status quo is real and is worth fighting for in their minds because they benefit from it. And so those people need to be sort of held to account. They need to be able to to defend their positions and not just be allowed to be diversionary in critiquing Black Lives Matter rather than addressing the issues on which Black Lives Matter is focused. See, and and this is one of the reasons why I I wrote a piece in the New York Daily News at the end of May in which I was trying to get people to focus on after the riots. Because if the conversation is just about rioting, then the conversation never moves to the things about which the uprising is based. If the conversation is always about looting, then it can't be about police brutality. If the conversation is always about black misbehavior, then it can't be about redlining or education or income or housing or all those other things. And so from my view, the conversation has to pivot from protest to politics and forcing people to account for their support for political positions that have sustained this this system for 400 years. Does the policy need to be clearly spelled out or is it the politics first and then the policy will come? Well, I think the policy has to be clearly laid out, but there's more to the story than that. So too often, and I think this happened among a lot of black people when Barack Obama got elected in 2008, people seem to think that you just elect the people and policy is self-executing. But it's not. It's a long and arduous process that requires constant monitoring, It also requires constant turnout in elections, because as you know, it's one thing to pass a public policy. It's another thing to put together regulations that will sort of guide the application of that policy. But it's another thing altogether to sustain year in and year out the effective enforcement of that public policy. So one of my academic heroes who's transitioned from this life is a man named Haynes Walton. He's the first African-American to get a PhD at Howard University in political science and went on to carve a monumental and consequential career as a scholar uh, the last 15 or so years of which he was at the University of Michigan. Well, when I was in graduate school, he wrote a book that 
to this day means so much to me. And it was called When the Marching Stopped. And it was a look at what went on in federal civil rights regulatory agencies. And one of the subplots to that book was how who's in charge of the bureaucracy will tell you a lot about the way in which public policies will be implemented and regulated. So if you have a president who is against certain kinds of civil rights policies, for, for example, and the same thing can be said for environmental policy or any kind of public policy, but as it pertains to civil rights public policy, if you have a president who's not particularly interested in that, he or she might make, as the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, somebody who's actually oppositional to civil rights enforcement, as Ronald Reagan did when he appointed William Bradford Smith as Assistant U.S. Attorney General for Civil Rights. Or you may put somebody in place who's against environmental regulation, so on and so forth. That happens all the time. And so if you want real change, you got to turn out elections, you got to change public policy, but you also have to pay attention and monitor that policy to make sure that it's effectively being implemented. And that's the long way of saying to answer your question. We can't know until we pay attention and know who's in office and that there have to be monitoring organizations in place to make sure that the people who are tasked with implementing this public policy are actually doing so. Dr. Michael Fauntroy, thank you very much, my friend. This has been a really great discussion and hopefully the first of many. No problem. Looking forward to it. Hope to catch up with you soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 